Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canelli, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. Today, a dual treat for you. That's right, two guests in one show, two actors from the iconic movie Caddyshack, which came out 42 years ago on July 25th. That's right. 42 years ago, we have Michael O'Keefe, who played Danny Noonan, and Cindy Morgan, who played Lacey Underall. Enjoy these interviews as they were first heard on the now defunct Golf Zone podcast. You might know him as Fred from Roseanne or Ben Meekum in The Great Santini, but for sure, you golf fans remember Danny Newton from Caddyshack. Please welcome to the show, Michael O'Keefe. Michael, how are you? Tommy Canelli, what's going on, man? Not much. Excited to talk to you and learn more about Caddyshack. And your vast film resume and TV career is pretty impressive, I must say. I see that you started way back in a Colgate TV commercial. How old were you then? I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school in Mamaroneck High School in Westchester County. And... Um, you know, there was a guy whose name was Roger Leonard, whose cousin was Regina Fry, who was our English slash drama teacher. And Roger was like a working actor and a choreographer and a dancer and a piano player. You know, one of those like show business jack of all trades. And he used to come out and choreograph the high school musicals. And um, he thought I had a little something and he introduced me to his commercial agents. And the next thing I knew, I was sticking my head out of a bus and you know, it was actually a great payday for me, too. I think I remember, if I remember right, for that one gig, and this was 1970, I made $30,000 on this Colgate commercial. Wow. That's a pretty good payday in 1970. For a 15-year-old, you know what I mean? I bought a car, uh, you know, like that. Outside of Caddyshack, and we're going to get to that, in TV, you were in MASH as Corporal Richard Travis and also Tom, and then you've been in Law & Order, Law and Order Criminal Intent twice and SVU twice, in addition to playing Fred in Roseanne. I just got to say, you know, it's it's impressive to take a look at your entire body of work. Well, uh, you know, and how about my actual body, though, Tommy, because I'm really <laughs> in great shape for someone my age. But, you know, like and even, you know, I've been really fortunate, especially the last few years. I did a nice did on Homeland on their season four with opposite Claire Danes and Manny Patinkin, which was a lot of fun. I did this thing with Brian Cranston a couple of years ago, Sneaky Pete. That's a really kind of cool. Um, this might be right up your alley, actually, because it's a whole kind of like con man thing with G uh, Giovanni Rabisi playing this con man who's pretending to be a guy named Pete, hence the title Sneaky Pete. And uh, Cranston's in it, you know, and uh, this year I was on um, City on a Hill with Kevin Bacon which is a lot of fun is running on Showtime and run by, you know, that was really, you know, one of the great uh, writing combinations because the guy running the show is Tom Fontana, who's a TV legend. He did the wire saying elsewhere. He's been around forever. And then his young partner was this guy named Charles McLean, Chuck McLean, who's this crazy Boston writer that uh, fell into business with uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And they, they were executive producing the show. So you know, I've had a really good run. It's only it's only getting better right now. Knock on wood. 
on that city on a hill, that Showtime series with Kevin Bacon, that's about a corrupt FBI agent that was supposed to be like a 1990 Boston. Is that correct? Yeah, it's more or less based on a true story. They called it the uh, Boston Miracle, where um, the crime rate in Boston dropped something like 85 percent because of an unlikely alliance between this FBI agent and a kind of a crusading district attorney. And so the uh, Chuck McLean, who grew up in Boston, is a real Boston guy, um, kind of expanded on it and, and wrote into this really seedy, interesting world. It's, it's much more than a procedural show. It's got some, I don't know, really dense, complicated and interesting writing. I, it was one of those things, if you're an actor and you get a chance to be in a show like that, you're like, oh, the gods just smiled on me and gave me a great job, you know? And what character do you play in the show? I can't remember now. It's been so long since they paid me, Tommy. No, I play, I pay, <laughs> I, I play Bacon's FBI partner. So Bacon's this really seedy, he makes James Woods look like a nice person, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, and then I play his partner who's been kind of drawn into his corruption and is none too happy about it. So folks, go to the website and go to the episode page. I'm going to put links on how you can take a view of all this stuff that Michael has coming up. He's got more coming and we're going to get to that. But I know everybody wants to hear about Caddyshack. For the audition, Michael, was it always for the part of Danny Noonan or were you looked at for any other parts in the movie? Yeah, they wanted to play. What are you, what are you talking about? Are you think Lacey Underall? What, are you, what, what, are you, what else would I have done in that stupid movie? I don't, I don't so, know. Hopefully not Spalding. <laughs> They would have gotten, they got real stars like Chevy and, and Bill, who wasn't a real star then, but became one, but certainly Ted and Rodney. I do know that actually when Ted came in for the audition, he was supposed to audition for Dr. Beeper. And he goes into the meeting and he said, you know what? I'm way too important to play Dr. Beeper. You have to cast me as Judge Smiles or I'm not going to be in your stupid golf movie. Because And they, you know, of course, being movie producers, they had this delusion that they're going to get Jason Robards to do it, which was never going to happen in a million years. But, you know, when you're making a movie, there's like this thing that producers do in Hollywood. It's like a glandular condition. Somebody gives you several million dollars to make a movie. Then you think for some reason you're going to be able to get Humphrey Bogart to be in your movie, whether or not he's dead or it doesn't really matter. You think, oh, I'll just get Bogart. It'll be fine. We'll figure this out. <laughs> So they thought they were going to get Jason Robards, which, of course, didn't work. And then Ted got the part. Here's a great story about Rodney's meeting on the role. Rodney goes, and this was the 70s, and I can tell this story now because I'm not the first one to have told it in public. I might not have told this story had it not been in this thing that was on uh, A&E about the making of the movie. But Rodney goes into this meeting with John Peters and Doug Kenny and, and Harold Ramis, and they say, hey, it's nice to meet you. He sits down and he goes, yeah, great to meet you, too. And he takes out a vial of cocaine does a few lines out on the table, rolls up a hundred dollar bill, does two snorts, offers the hundred dollar bill to somebody else and says, so what are we talking about? (laughs) Oh my God. I'm surprised they didn't all go to jail. Also Mickey Rourke was being looked at for Danny Noonan as well. You know, the story is, and and I never talked to Mickey about this and we're kind of friends because we're, we're in a movie together called the pledge that Sean Penn directed. And, uh, you know, so we get along and know each other. And I used to see him around, you know, cause we broke in around the same time. And, uh, I would like to verify this with him, but according to the legend, and I think I got this from Wally Nasita, who was the casting director on the film, 
it was down to me and Mickey. And, you know, they went with me because probably they were afraid that Mickey, you can't have Danny Noonan beating the shit out of Ty Webb. <laughs> if Ty Webb says something snarky, you can't have, you know, Noonan just like leveling him on the course. And then Lou, the caddy master going, where's Mr. Webb? And, and Danny Noon saying, I just kicked his ass out on 14. You may want to send out a cart to pick him up. <laughs> How much fun was it filming that movie? Too much fun. It was too much fun. You know, we got, we were completely out of control. It was everything you've heard is true. Everything you haven't heard is probably true too. <laughs> I mean, it was really, a, it was one of the uh, sort of last seventies um, kind of breakdowns, but you know, truthfully, if you go back and look at the era and, and read the stories about like the making of Fosse with, with Dustin Hoffman, the, the making of Thief with James Caan, everybody, I don't know where this idea got around Hollywood, but everybody got the idea that cocaine was like having like, you know, uh, uh, you know, a vitamin B12 shot, you know, and it was going to be really helpful to make you better actor, make you smarter, make you more. And all of which, of course, was, you know, a bunch of baloney. Um, but that didn't stop us from finding out the hard way exactly what it did to. Well, you say whatever you heard might be true. Was it true then that people were carrying around salt shakers with cocaine in them? Absolutely true. Some come into your trailer, you know, like in the dressing room, you'd be in your dressing room, maybe lunch. Somebody like the director who's dead now, so I can talk about him. would come in and say, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? Sure. Great. Want to get high? Yeah, sure. You know, Boom, salt shaker cocaine out on the table. <laughs> How much of the movie was ad lib? Because I understand the script was pretty much tossed away shortly after filming started. It's true. Probably within about the first week, they realized, they being Harold and Doug and Brian, realized that they had this commodity in Rodney and Ted and Chevy and Bill that was, you know, akin to the Marx Brothers which then made me, you know, gummo marks, you know what I mean? So like they had those gummo, I mean, mm -hmm. they had those, those four guys doing their thing. And they realized, because the whole story was much more about like Danny Noonan's coming of age and Danny Noonan this. And they came to me and they said, we're changing the script. And, you know, Scott Columbia, you know, who played Denunzio said, Hey, you know, you should, don't you think you should be fighting this where they're taking away all your stuff? And, you know, and I didn't, and it was partly because, you know, I was young, but also in retrospect, I think even then I knew that I was not in their league. You know, I mean, those guys, Chevy, Bill, Doug, uh, Rodney, you know, Harold, Ted, all of them had this, um, you know, capacity. They were just playing baseball, if you, if you will, or golf, obviously in a different, you know, uh, way than I could. And so, and I think I instinctively knew that. And so I was just like, no, I think I'll just go along for the ride. And now, you know, we have this completely insane American comedy classic and everybody's happy about it. So I think it's a good thing I backed off instead of trying to like, you know, stand to my guns and, you know, not the, the, what, what actors do when they don't get their way is they refuse to come out of their trailer, Tommy, you probably know this. <laughs> so they, you know, Hey, Michael keeps in his trailer and he's not coming out until you rewrite the movie again, back to his stuff. You know, that would have been my play had I been trying to like, you know, steer the ship a slightly different way, but um, I didn't, you know, and I think probably everybody's happy about it. Is there a part in the movie that you remember ad-libbing off the top of your head? Well, you know, the thing about you do drugs every day, you do drugs, and you know, Danny every day that that whole scene was improvised more or less. Um, the majority, everything Bill said in the movie was improvised. 
I would say about, you know, Chevy and I, I don't know, 25, 35% of what we did was improvised, mainly coming from him and then me trying to find a way to, you know, catch up or, you know, keep up with what he was about. I would say Rodney, probably more than 50% of his stuff, probably 75% of his stuff was improv because they were sort of writing that on the fly. All of Bill's stuff, they were writing on the fly. Ted was certainly capable, uh, fully capable of stepping toe to toe with anybody in any, you know, regard as an actor, comedy or otherwise on that picture. And I'm sure he was, you know, contributing his own as well, you know. So, you know, it was fun because Harold came out of that world. You know, Harold Ramis, our director, he was an SCTV guy, you know, and uh, uh, he just had that, you know, skill set. They were trained. So was Bill. Bill was a second city guy. So was Harold. You know, they were trained in that kind of um, capacity to sort of be given a premise and then run with it. And, you know, it looks when you hear like improvise, you think, oh, they just made it up on the spot. And and really, that's true. But really what it was a reflection of was the 15 years prior to the making of Caddyshack. Harold and Bill really worked their ass off at like learning how to improvise in an effective way. And it's a skill set. It's like going out on a golf course. You know, you can talk to all the golf you want in the bar, but you know, when it comes down to it, you, you know, you can either get on the, the tee and, and tee it up at the right height and keep the ball on the fairway, or you can't. And no amount of talk or like watching golf is going to make that better for you. And the same thing when you do like a, that kind of improv or, comedy that Caddyshack required, those guys had a skill set that was much, much more sophisticated than what I had at the time. I had a lot of attitude and, you know, and that was about it really. Could anyone actually play golf? You know, I put together a decent swing and, you know, I mean, that was, I usually tell people that my swing was computer generated. It wasn't really me, but, you know, actually back in the seventies, we didn't have that stuff, you know? So, um, I worked my ass off for almost two months uh, with a couple of different pros to try to get it together. Chevy is one of the worst golfers I've ever seen. And he's supposed to be playing this legend. Right. Um, also, I don't think he minds me saying is he hates golf and he hates golfers. So, you know, that was a rather cynical <laughs> uh, choice on his part to be, you know, to go along for the ride on that. Bill is actually a decent golfer. Bill has a great shot. And then there's a, there's a scene which is cut, but you can find it on YouTube, actually, of Chevy and Bill and I, where Bill pulls up alongside of Chevy in this, like, mower that they use to mow the uh, fairways, which is essentially looks like a tank coming out of the, you know, it does. The dark. And it, it's, it looks like some sort of, you expect James Mason as the silver fox rommel to come out of this, you know, machine that Bill's driving, but it's Bill. And he gets down and he gives Chevy a golf lesson, which is hilarious, but his swing breaking down about how he's breaking his wrists too early before he hits mm -hmm. the ball. And then he takes a whack with a three wood without warming up. And, you know, he crushed that thing, probably hit the three wood a couple of hundred yards. So, I mean, that told me all I needed to know about Bill's game. I would say Bill was probably a better golfer than anybody. Uh, the guy, forgive me, the guy, I forgot his name, the guy who played Dr. Beeper, terrible golfer. Uh, and Rodney, you couldn't even call a terrible golfer. He was not a golfer. You know, Rodney was, I don't know what he was doing. So, <laughs> well, the one thing I did know about acting was that, you know, when you're given opportunities like that, you have to bring as much as you can to the table. And I knew that if I didn't show up with some magic golf swing, that the end of the movie, people would be like, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. You know, so at least I looked like, mm -hmm. you know, I had a good swing. I actually almost hold that trap shot that's in the film. 
Um, and that was me. And I got really lucky. I mean, I rolled that thing within an inch of the cup, you know, on the right line with the right pace. It would have been a good putt, but it was, but it was a trap shot. So, I, you know, I got lucky with all that. I worked with the, one of the Toski brothers, who I'm sure you've heard of, the, the, you know, uh, Bob Toski. I worked with his brother, Ben, when I was down in Florida. And I worked with Tom Neaporty, his assistant, Dave Schultz, and, and Tom's son, Joe, when I was up at the Wingfoot before I went down there. What did you guys think of the movie when you were, were filming it? Did you guys have any idea it was going to be a classic? No, I mean, you know, we were, you know, for all of the talk about the partying, which was real, there was a whole other thing going on. And, and like I said about Bill and Chevy having this skill set, you know, Doug Kenny really was arguably a comic genius. And if you go back and look at his rather short career, because he died at 36, he wrote and produced Animal House and he wrote and produced Caddyshack and he started National Lampoon magazine. And he was like one of the drivers of the Harvard Lampoon when he was an undergrad at Harvard with, with Henry Beard. And then they did all those National Lampoon radio hours. And I mean, you know, he was really one of a kind and he had a really had work ethic. But not unlike, you know, some of his heroes, you know, like Hemingway and people like that. These guys worked really hard and then they partied really hard, you know, and so um, they really worked their asses off to make that script right, to make the story right, to get the locations right, to get the right actors in the role. And, you know, it, the film holds up and, and it's because of that kind of diligence. So for all the talk about partying and craziness and cocaine and all that on Caddyshack, everybody worked their ass off to make it great. And but it, you never really know. I mean, you know, I've been in the room, frankly, and, and thanks, thankfully, yet again, all these people I've worked with are dead because I'm old and, you know, they I survived. But I've been in the room with Hal Ashby, Neil Simon and Marty Ritt, and we made one of the worst movies that was ever made in the 1980s. So, I mean, it's really easy to make a bad movie, even when you're working with really smart, really talented people. So you never know what you're doing until you've done it. And then somebody's in an editing room and it's all over. They can't go back to the circus and film. And now the editor and the director go, okay, what do we got? And then you try and nearly, you know, quilt the whole thing together, if you know what I mean, and see if it's any good. And, you know, fortunately, Caddyshack came out okay. But certainly when we were doing it, you know, it was like hit or miss. I mean, who knew you know, what we were doing, you know? Do you have a good story for our listeners that happened outside of shooting, whether it was partying or something that happened off camera or anything like that? I will tell you one that was really kind of crazy because Bill at the time, Bill Murray was just on his first season of Saturday. He was in the middle of his first season of Saturday Night Live. It was only available for nine days to do what he did when we were down there. Um, and you know, he went from being this relatively obscure guy to being a big TV star kind of overnight. So he was trying to achieve anonymity. So we went to a bar and he drank the whole night wearing like a gorilla mask at the bar, you know, and, and people kept saying, who are, who are you? And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say it. So I was like his, I was like, as my friend's attorney, I can't tell you who he is. And, and if I did tell you who he was, we'd have to kill you because he works for the government. Uh, I can't tell you which department, but let's just say he's, you know, it's one of those, you know, acronym departments. So you got to leave him alone. So, I mean, you know, and then th it was also true that like, you know, we'd get to the set, it would be seven thirty, you know, somebody be in makeup, somebody be in trailer and 
some assistant director would come in to make them go, is Bill, is Bill Murray in here? And we'd go, no. And they, they'd be like, Oh God damn it. You know? And then they'd be like driving around in cars, trying to find him, you know, and they'd find him like asleep in a sand trap outside the motel somewhere <laughs> passed out from last night. They'd say, Billy be like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. You know? And then he'd like write that brilliant speech that he wrote. Uh, where he's the greenskeeper winning the master in his mind, masters in his minds, and he's lopping the head off of those flowers. Which, by the way, I watched him write that, and you know, that's a once once in a lifetime kind of thing. That's as good as anything that Billy Wilder ever wrote. You know, it's as good as thing that anything that's been in a Preston Sturgis movie. Um, you know, and he did it on the fly. So yeah, it was insane. And yeah, he was, you know hung over and lost half the time. But then when he showed up, he hit it out of the park every time. How did you keep a straight face then during filming? I, I carried a safety pin in my pocket. And if anybody made me laugh, I would pop and stab <laughs> myself in the thigh. Seriously? No, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but you know, I mean, you know, I, I am a professional actor, you know, I'm not just a knucklehead. Right. And you know, one of the things they train you to do is, you know, like I, I like I often say about acting or theater, you know, you can liken it to being, a, you know, in a bar and, and the audience is like the, the the patron and the the writers and the actors are like the bartenders. It's our job to give them the martini. It's not our job to drink the martini. You know, we give the patron the martini. They drink the martini. They have a good time. We watch them drink the martini. You know, so that's what we do. That's what we're trained to do. So, I mean, I knew that I knew enough, even though I was, you know, certainly full of, you know, piss and vinegar at that age. I knew enough to know that, you know, I don't, you don't laugh when these guys are uh, doing their thing. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm able to kind of keep a straight face through most of that stuff. That's a great analogy. Did you keep anything from the movie? Uh, you know, just uh, a desire to maintain sobriety and never get high again. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever thought about writing a book? You know, I mean, it's been done. Chris uh, Nashworthy, I believe is the guy's name or Nashworthy. I forget how to pronounce his last name. He wrote a great book about the mating, making of cash. He talked to me about it. I don't really have anything to add, you know, on all, except, you know, all the stories are true. And, you know, I loved all those guys, you know, I mean, I was younger than them. I was like mm, a little more than 10 years younger than, Harold and Doug and, and, uh, and Chevy, you know, and I had already seen Chevy do lemmings in New York, which was this great knockoff on, uh, the Woodstock music festival that national lampoon put together. Um, Harold, you know, I already admired from second city TV. I was a huge, uh, national lampoon fan. And of course knew who Doug was and of all of them, you know, and this is not to throw, a darker, you know, or an unfavorable light on anybody. But Doug was the most uh, endearing, intelligent, affable cat. You know, and actually, in all seriousness, one of the ways I woke up to drug use was because of Doug's death, because as probably you know, and most of your listeners know, Doug was strung out on cocaine. And when we finished the film, he didn't like it, really went into a serious depression I was drinking a lot and ended up committing suicide as a result of all of that, you know, and, and that's the darker side of that whole uh, ethos that we were all living back then, which was, you know, we all thought it was fun and crazy, but nobody was hip to just how dangerous it was and just how debilitating it was, you know, and sadly we lost Doug and, you know, if he had 
with a very, you know, a modicum of effort, you know, like, you know, if we had just been sort of more aware of, of what was going on, he could have gotten sober. He could have stuck around and we could still have, we could still have him right now. We could have had a career as, you know, varied and as interesting as Billy Wilder coming from Doug Kenny, but, you know, unfortunately it was cut short. So, you know, I, I did have to kind of take stock after that. And I remember being at his funeral, man, and we were all just, you know, just rocked by, by, but of course, because it was Doug Kenny's funeral and we were upset, but people would come up to you and say, um, you know, Doug didn't commit suicide. And we'd be like, what do you, what do you mean? They said, you know, he, he tripped and he fell while he was looking for a place to commit suicide. So <laughs> even then <laughs> at Doug's expense, we were like, you know, you commit suicide and we're heartbroken, but that doesn't mean we can't throw you under the bus and get a couple of laughs while we're here. So. Also, Michael, you have Netflix movie, Things Heard and Seen. It's about a Manhattan couple that moves to Hudson Valley. It's a thriller, mystery. Talk about that one a little bit. I'm glad you brought it up because I totally forgot that I'm in that movie and that I wanted to talk about it. So, yeah, man, I'm in this movie. So it stars James Norton, who's this really wonderful young English actor who does a great American dialect. Um, he was in that um, television version of uh war and peace with paul dano that's really excellent just jesse buckley was was into it jesse buckley is a young irish actress who, who i'm really fascinated by um he uh is he does a wonderful young actor and and he plays the lead and his wife who's the female lead is amanda Seyfried, who was just nominated for an oscar mm. for mank opposite gary oldman and um, she's amazing. And I'd actually worked with her like 15 or 20 years ago. I played her dad in one of those Law and Order ep episodes. I was her stepfather. Um, and so uh, there is this murder that takes place in, uh, in the house that they buy in the country. And it's one of those unfortunately haunted houses uh, that populate, you know, horror movies, which it's like, you know, like people, I don't know if you ever went to a movie in Times Square but like, you know, if it was like The Shining, I see that. Um, right. So like, you know, then if it, they'd be yelling at Shelley Duvall, don't go into that room. Don't, don't. What are you doing? Don't do that. And Things Heard and Seen is one of those movies. Like, oh, God, don't buy that house. That house is. Oh, they bought the house, man. That house is haunted. You know, it's one of those movies. Um and there's some, I think, brilliant stuff in it. And this couple, uh, Shari uh, uh, Bregman and, and uh, Bob Polsini, who, do, who did this great film with Paul Giamatti uh, years ago about Harvey Picard, the great American graphic novelist called American Splendor. They are the uh, writer-directors of this movie. They work as a team. And, they, and, and it was funny for me personally because even before we got filming, I was really already having a great time because... I got a phone call from Karen Allen uh, about a week before filming saying that she had just been cast as my wife and you and your listeners will probably remember Karen from Raiders of the Lost Ark mm -hmm. where she played Marion. Well, the next movie she did after Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was in 1979 or 80 was a movie called split image. And she was opposite me. And we then were boyfriend and girlfriend for two years after the making of that movie 40 years ago. And the directors of this movie that's on Netflix, Things Heard and Seen, had cast us as husband and wife, not even knowing that we knew each other. That's pretty cool. So, 
Yeah, it was cool, right? So I yeah. started texting them pictures of Karen and I when we were 25 years old. And then, you know, the first day on the set when Karen and I get together was at lunch. We hadn't seen each other in a while. And, you know, I knew it was going to be fine because I'd been in touch with her and we're totally cool. But the directors didn't know that. So the scuttlebutt on the set was like everybody was like peeking around corners, waiting to see if Karen and I were going to be like, you know, on talking terms when we sat down to lunch, you know. <laughs> and uh, and of course we were. We had a blast. So that that was really fun. And also there's some really, really good character actors in this movie. Uh, F. Murray Abraham is in it. Oh, I just forgot this guy's name. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm going to have to remember his name. We'll come back to it. Oh, he's one of my favorite actors. Some real, really just great writing and really spooky effects uh, that'll just blow your mind. It's just, it's just a fun, fun ride. I think it's really cool. So, even though I forget half of my colleagues, I still admire them. <laughs> Everybody's got Netflix, so check out Things Heard Danger and Seen. Back. James Urbaniak, that's who I was thinking about. God damn it, James Urbaniak is in this movie. He's amazing. <laughs> was the explosion at the end of the movie so large and loud that pilots at the nearby Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport became worried and reported a plane crash to air traffic control? True. That's Absolutely true. true. And, you know, that explosion, the other thing you may or may not know about it was that we'd already been denied permission more than once by the owners of the golf course who said, no, you may not blow anything up. No, you may not build a fake thing green to blow up, blah, 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 blah. No, you may not do that. No. And of course, because it was the seventies, our producers took the owners of the golf course out to lunch that day, got them drunk and blew up that green. And then afterwards it was like, what what are you going to do? You know, Fire us. We don't work for you. And we're finished. That was our last day of work. So see you later. Sorry, we blew up your golf course. <laughs> you know, me- meanwhile, the, the, the local pilots were complaining to the tri- the tower, you know, the control tower at uh, Daytona or Fort Lauderdale Airport, that they thought a plane had crashed into the golf course because it was that big an explosion. And the other little tidbit I'll tell you about that explosion was because Here's what a knucklehead kind of actor, studio actor I am. I was trying, of course, to make the putt that would win the match. So when the explosion happened, everybody, of course, turned around because the the golf green that exploded was behind us where the action was. Turned around to watch the explosion, except me, because I kept watching the putt. And I was watching the ball, making sure it was going into the hole. So Harold Ramis cut, and he came out, and he's like, he, he's like beside himself and he says, Michael, you didn't look at the explosion. What are you thinking? I was like, I know I was trying to make that putt, man. I was concentrating. He was like, oh, my God, you're killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> Michael, I want to say on behalf of all the Caddyshack fans, my listeners, thank you for everything you've done. And thank you for Danny Noonan. Tommy, thank you, man. I mean, it's been a great ride. I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I get, you know what they're going to Here's something else I can talk about. I just got approached to, to create like a Danny Noonan, uh, baseball card, mm. you know, that's going to be like an autographed uh, baseball card. And they, they just approached me and made me an offer, man. It's 40 some odd years later. And Caddyshack is like the gift that keeps on giving, you know, I can't get, you know, it's going to say, you know what the first line of my obituary is going to be, right? Danny Noonan is dead. <laughs> Danny Noonan is dead. Yeah. I mean, what else are they going to put? You know, what's left? You know, this, it's not, and then, you know, everything else is going to be like, 
there's Caddyshack and then there's like the other 120 credits that I have afterwards, just like that. And then these other 120 things over here. I thought maybe on Danny Noonan's tombstone, it would say he did drugs every day. No, but on my tombstone, it's going to say, I told you I was sick. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, man, you are the best. (laughs) Thank you, man. This is my story. No symptoms to being diagnosed with colon cancer, which led to four surgeries and a 50-50 survival rate. It then spread to my liver, in which only 3% are caught in time. Now, a 1% chance it ever comes back. And I'm on the road to inspiring everyone because you have three choices. Live, die, or fight. Bernie Siegel said, no matter what the statistics say, there's always a way. To book me, Tommy Canale, to speak to your event or group, go to TommyCanale.com. That's TommyCanale.com. And get ready to be inspired to inspire others because you're one day away from changing your life. You may know her as Laura or Yori and Tron, but she's better known as Lacey Underall in Caddyshack. A Chicago native, please welcome to the show, Cindy Morgan. Cindy, how are you? I'm doing great, Tommy. How about you? I'm doing very well. You and I are both from Illinois. We were just chatting before we started. You were a radio DJ, I understand, at WSDM, which is now The Loop. Did you really just quit on air while the record was still spinning on the turntable? That's the rumor, but it was very shortly after. I was uh, doing morning drive in the city of Chicago, which at the time there was no internet. So we broadcast from the towers and Chicago was the only city, big city with a 360 degree radius. So because of that, we had a bigger market than even LA. New York was number Mm. one, Chicago was number two. So I'm doing morning drive in the number two market probably in the world. And I'm getting paid $135 a week. (laughs) And I (laughs) got a call one Saturday morning saying they were going to take away my overtime and give it to a guy. Okay. Uh, and I, and I, and I just had, I just had to go. I just, I just had to go. I mean, I, I mean, I loved it. I mean, it was fun. Uh, I learned a lot. These were the chess checker record people. I'm thinking those are the same guys. They own WVON, the AM station, WSDM, the radio, uh, uh, FM station. And I think that might be the one referred into Cadillac uh, on Cadillac records. So, so those are the same, same guys. What made you move to L.A.? And then how did you get the gig being the Irish Spring Girl in the commercial? More money. They wouldn't let me do anything <laughs> on camera. I had come from Rockford, Illinois, where I did the weather terribly, as I told you a minute ago. Um, and uh, so and 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 I did all the commercials for for that particular the CBS affiliate and the local uh, public service talk show, which was a challenge. You know, especially when you get guests who don't want to talk or one day none of my guests showed up with a guy with his German Shepherd and he was too shy. So I talked to a dog for 25 minutes. <laughs> so I can talk to anybody on camera, really. But when I got to Chicago, uh, well, you know, when, when you've got the headphones on, your voice drops into a lower register. People thought I was the voice on the radio. They wouldn't let me on camera. 
They just would not. So I, I took like about, I don't know, a couple months of, of modeling jobs. So the, the kind where, do you remember the old auto shows where oh, they probably still have them. You go to the show, you, I, very few, not a lot of people could memorize a 10 page script about like tractors overnight. So I got to travel a lot. And I went to L.A. and I went, what the heck? Try it out here. And within about a month, I got the Irish Spring commercial. And eight months later, I, I got Caddyshack. How did you get casted for Caddyshack? Did you apply or they find you? <laughs> no. I think the reason I got it is because I never thought I would. <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 I did some commercial work and... Uh, I got I got a theatrical well theatrical agent meaning they'll submit you for films and and um, I, I went in and read for it and I went I've got nothing to lose because this isn't me I mean tw- after twelve years of Catholic school I didn't have a lot of experience <laughs> for this but I, but see that's the trick if you're not if you've got nothing to lose you're not nervous mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the last audition I went in and I saw I was the only one on the call sheet to read for Lacey Underall. Then I got nervous. I said, these knuckleheads think I can do this. Are they crazy? <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I focused up and I remember thinking, don't think about the lines. Don't think about who's in the room. Thank God. I didn't know who Doug Kenny was. I didn't know who John Peter was. I kind of knew who Chevy Chase was. And, um, and I, I walked in and I, and I just said, look the guy in the eye and make him sweat. Look Doug Kenny in the eye. And thank God it was a guy I was reading it. And, and he started sweating. And I went, okay, I, I got this. And that was it. I, I, I just don't know. But lucky, right? Yeah. How old were you at the time? We going to start that? <laughs> <laughs> did, did, it, 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 it actually was for, I was, uh, let's just say I was old enough to know what I was doing. Okay. And, and young enough to pull it off. The, there was a line in the film that I asked Carol to take out. Um, I walk up to uh, Chevy and I say, hey, I'm Lacey. I'm 17 and I'm trouble. And I said, uh, Harold, um, this is a comedy, but not that kind. So let's take that line out. Is that OK? And Harold was uh, very flexible. In fact, he really was Lacey in a, in a lot of scenes. He would come up and whisper in my ear, hey, go do this. And I went, why? He goes, just do it. Just do it. The best one was... Um, I was doing the love scenes with Chevy in this house in Florida that was like with the humidity, with the giant Klieg lights. It was it had to be well over 105, you know, with the humidity and, and no air conditioning because you can't run those when you're running sound. Mm-hmm. So um, um, Harold and I'm getting my makeup constantly touched up. It's hot. And Harold said, go sit down next to Chevy at the piano. And, and I said, why? <laughs> I said, we're burning daylight. What are you doing? And he, and he said, just say, sing me a love song. I said, and I sat down and I said, sing me a love song. And I look at him like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and out of the corner of my right eye, I see the darn camera light on. That's how I knew we were shooting a scene. We weren't, it wasn't discussed, wasn't in the script. It was entire, it was, it was entirely improvised. Luckily, Chevy was great. So that entire scene, the piano, the massage, the oil, that entire scene was all improvised. The piano was entirely improvised. The massage was half and half. Okay. Some lines were in the script. The scene was in the script, but the way it turned out, well, let's just say, um, never was it in the script for Chevy to dump a bottle of oil on my bed. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, we had a couple of words about a couple of things. The thing about Chevy is he's brilliant. 
I mean, I, I go back and I look at the, I, I don't watch the film because it's, it's like watching home movies of my crazy out of control relatives at a, at a picnic. <laughs> I just, you know, it's, 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 it's like, whoa. But I, you know, I look at a lot of the scenes and I can see where Chevy is actually helping me with my timing, helping me uh, get to the scene because I was, I was, you play sports. Did you ever play with somebody much, much, much better than you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I had to step up my game and pay attention in that scene. We had words about a couple of things and blah, 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 blah. And Chevy came back and Harold negotiated and Chevy came back and said, I'm going to shoot two masters. The way to ensure you're not going to shoot anymore is to dump a bottle of oil on the back of your actress. So her hair is full of oil. That scene can't be reshot again, you know? So but it worked. It did. Because passion reads as passion. Love and hate are closer than you think. Did your part then change over the course of filming from what it was originally written? The the the, the part who who I was supposed to be, I think got set in in the first couple of scenes. I did the walk by the pool and the fake dive. I can't dive. I can't swim. I'm legally blind. I had to walk that board blind and feel the board with my feet and, and, and then spring. And, but I had to look like I knew what I was doing and enjoying it. That was the, the trick. You pulled it off. But I figured, well, I, I was looking at the other actors. I'm like, they're buying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lacey, the character of Lacey was kind of there, but I appeared in the movie a lot more than the original story. The original story is about the cats. Mm-hmm. And that, that fell out because, um, the camera guys were the action four of the funniest men on the planet at the time with three different kinds of humor. I mean, Chevy and Bill were, were very, they both came from the SNL comedy and prop background. That, that's what they did. And they know how to do it. Uh, Bill originally had no lines. I understand. He just kept talking. And uh, Rodney uh, came from the nightclub stand-up scene. So he had this routine and he would just say stuff, whatever the heck popped into his head. And there's Ted hanging onto his script because he's trained to work with a script. And that's how that chemistry came off. Ted was legitimately angry by the end, but it worked. It so did. the camera started following the action. And as it followed these scenes as they evolved and were improvised, in order to get the film to a reasonable size, the, the, the caddy scene, the scenes got cut out. So it became about, and you do know that the gopher wasn't in yes. any of the principal photography. Yes, it was filmed after the film. It was like a gopher puppet. Uh, and Rodney leaps at something and said, the kangaroo stole my ball or something. That, that was a puppet. Yeah. Uh, after the fact, when they brought all of the film back to uh, L.A., brilliant little comedic vignettes and no story. <laughs> so they, they wove the story about Billy chasing the gopher through the scenes. If you pull that out, um, it's, you got to have a story. The scene... Cindy, where Lacey's walking up the fairway and Danny Noonan's trying to get the caddy scholarship and you have the one-liners as you keep walking by Danny Noonan. Was that improvised right. or was that part of the script? No, those, that was in the script. Okay. That was in the script. And I didn't know what the hell I was <laughs> Because, you know, this is my first film. Shout out a sequence. It got to the point where the script didn't matter. I did two films where the script was like, don't even pay attention. Just go in, pit, look where you are, see what's going on, and do it. And and I would just get up, roll through hair, makeup, and wardrobe, and go outside. <laughs> maybe I was in the scene, maybe I wasn't, but that's how we did it. But those lines actually weren't script. 
I understand that you had a really close relationship with Rodney Dangerfield. Can, can you speak about that and how that did that? I'm sure that developed from the movie. Well, Rodney and I got along really well um, um, because uh, he's he was just a a really nice guy. This is his comeback job. He had been selling aluminum siding to support his family. And this is his comeback job. And he's used to um, a stand up comic or, or any particular kind of comedy. It's like music. It's got timing. And Rodney's used to saying a couple lines, people bursting into laughter and Rodney couldn't figure out. Well, I, w- I wish I had a camera. Uh, we, we broke for lunch one day, which was whenever the spirit moved them. I mean, so we were, and you, you know, there was just lunch and you better eat because you don't know when this is going to stop. <laughs> so um, I was at a table and it was just, you know, a little table, just me and Rodney. I wish there was a camera so you could see this guy. He's really genuinely going, he's tugging on his collar. He's sweating. He's nervous going, am I okay? Am I okay? It's my first movie. And I said, Rodney, you're stealing it. And he did, you know, um, as far as us being super close, we were, we literally all after filming the adrenaline's up, as you know, when you do a job or a sport, your adrenaline's still pretty high. And we were pretty high in the filming. And, and, you know, I, we were young enough that uh, it, it worked out for us. Uh, Rodney stayed. He would, was having as much fun as anybody else. Was it, so we kind of found that. Was it more fun for you, Cindy, on camera or off camera? Well, again, I'm going to go back to the sports metaphor. When you're playing, for example, in a tournament with people much better than you. Has that ever happened? Oh, Yes. Oh, yes. Many times. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're in it and you're working on it. And then you go to the, you know, the 19th hole and whatever, and you're having fun, but you're on high alert the whole time. You're paying attention. You're looking around, you're listening. I mean, you know, for people who say, if you're in Caddyshack, if you can remember Caddyshack, you weren't really there. Mm-hmm. I remember. I, 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 how could you forget it? I mean, it was my... I came from a broadcast background five years where everything was by the number, by the book. That FCC license means you run your radio station show by on a clock. There was no engineer. I was the engineer. There was nobody flipping on the tower and taking the meter reads. I was doing that. There was nobody. I was pulling the music. I was reading the news. I mean, everything's on a clock. And I get to this place thinking, oh, they'll be the best scripts. They'll be the best lighting. They'll be the best story. And thank God, when I got to L.A., I, I, I took a couple classes really quick. One, to get rid of my radio voice, because everything I said sounded like this. And one was luckily a comedy improvisation class taught by a man named Harvey Lumbeck. Uh, Michael Lumbeck is his son. He's a well-known director, comedy director. Uh, he taught by the old vaudeville method, which goes back to Phil Silvers, which goes back and back and back. And uh, there were three classes of 24. I was in the I was in the beginning beginning class, but in the main class of twenty four, the, the the there were people. Three of the people were Penny Marshall, uh, John Ritter, and Robin Williams. Wow! So you tell me, and this guy would yell at me. I was scared to death of this class. He would yell, "Morgan, stop going for the joke!" Because you know when you're in radio, you do all the talking. Thank God he taught me to do something nobody else could teach me to do. He taught me how to listen. 
Could you imagine me trying to take that scene from Chevy? No. Work. Follow it. Listen, follow it. Listen, that, that, that piano scene, look at my face looking at him. That's not me acting. That's me going, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what did you guys think of the movie? Was it being filmed? Did you think it was going to be a flop? Did you think it was going to be okay? Did you guys think, hey, we're on to something? I wasn't thinking about that at all. I was thinking about uh, in the beginning, it was what the hell is going on here? What am I going to do? And and, 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 and just since I, because of the radio background and because of some improv background, it's show up, look around, pay attention, see what's going on, and then find, find your place in the scene. Sometimes Harold would whisper something brilliant that I wouldn't get until years later what I was doing. You know? And sometimes uh, you were just there reacting off of what was going on. Uh, initially, when the film was released, it didn't do terribly well, my understanding is. Um um, for a number of reasons, uh, the press junkets, I guess, didn't go so well because the guys showed up for the press the same way they showed up on the set and it didn't work out yep. all that well, but it's an icon classic when, when the hurricane came through and for our listeners, there was a hurricane that delayed filming. I understand that pretty much the whole cast just bunkered down in a hotel that was on the golf course, boarded up some windows and had a party. Pretty much. I had um, flown back to L.A. and then to New York because I had a commercial I had to do. I mean, and I wasn't in those scenes. So I flew back, did that and came back after that. But, oh, yeah, that, uh, uh, we had those parties every night without the boards on the windows. <laughs> so, <laughs> that wasn't unusual at all. You had mentioned early on in the in the casting process that your thought was look him in the eye and make him sweat, which you did. Oh, yeah. Did you do the same thing on set and trying to make all the other guys around you just sweat? Well, yeah. You know why? I had to do this role. I was getting pushback here and there, but they started believing I was Lacey. I figured, what the heck? If they believe it, I'm going to use this because this, you know, you know, this will work and, and, and I can get what needs to be done, done, you know, and, uh, yeah, there were a lot of times I had a pushback, and 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 you know you just and that that intimidating Lacey character was hilarious. First of all, I, I didn't start really dating until well, didn't date until I was in college, and didn't really start dating until I was like twenty one. I had so little experience for this kind of thing. Can you imagine having no experience, and all of a sudden you're cast to play Superman? I mean, so you go, all right, I'll, I'll play along. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. After Caddyshack, you did Love Boat, Chips. You were in 16 episodes of Falcon Crest and then Matlock. How did Caddyshack then help you push your career well, forward? Caddyshack got me Tron. Tron is actually having its 39th anniversary. They're building a Tron roller coaster in Disney World right now. Wow. So that hasn't gone away either. Um, uh, I think I had just done Caddyshack and I went to lunch with one of the guys I knew from that comedy class. And the, the third tier, the, the, the experts. And uh, he was talking about some cartoon he was in. And I, I was just eating my salad. And I didn't work after Caddyshack for a long time because John Peters uh, made a threat and made good on it because I wouldn't do what he wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to shoot it for Playboy. I got no problem with Playboy. Uh, I just, that wasn't the deal. There was already enough going. And they were, they, it was a damn circus. And here's the thing, because... I grew up a blue collar kid from Chicago. 
I work for my dad in the factory, wiring and soldering circuit boards for Articat snowmobiles. I know what it is to have a job. I, and, and one summer I did production reports and one summer I worked in the mail. I understood what a job meant. And they were turning into a damn circus. So I went in there and I said, that's it. Enough bullcraft during what was called a nude scene, which was never a nude scene. You you make friends with your ward department. You got no problems. Mm -hmm. They sent a a photographer from Playboy that was, was, and I said, that's it. I'm clearing the set. Because I had worked in broadcasting, I knew who belonged there. They had the old cameras and I reassigned positions. I said, the director of photography runs camera. The camera operator pulls focus. Uh, I went Harold and that actor. And until then, I got all day. Take your time. My father was a plan manager. If he had troubles with the union, he'd say, go ahead. I'm turning down the plan if you won't negotiate. And, and, and by the way, the people for, who worked with my father on the opposite side are my best friends in Chicago now. Because after my dad passed away, they came up and told me about their going back and forth. And now they kind of run security when I go into Chicago. <laughs> They're wonderful people. Because of him making good on him saying that I you wouldn't let at- him shoot the the new thing for Playboy. Right, I just did, wouldn't. right. So then he said, you're not going to work again in the industry. And Oh, he said a lot more than that. There, it was screaming. You're blank in this business. You'll never blanking work again. He broke my contract. Mm. I called my agent and my agent said, honey, you're not a doe-eyed girl from the Midwest. Handle it. So I did and came back and fired him and went to William Morris and had literally more lunches with agents than auditions for a year and a half until Tron came along. That's what, because I had that lunch, all of a sudden I got these pages that made no sense to me. None, zero. And I went up to the Disney and and read with Jeff Bridges. I kind of knew who Jeff Bridges was and they put us on camera and I got the job. I never knew why. It was because of that lunch. So I didn't, what got me working again was half after, I didn't work after Caddyshack for a long time. So from Tron, then you got into Love Boat and the more TV series that you did. Well, then it became somebody they could cast here and there. And, you know, I mean, people like putting people in places where there's recognizable characters. And yeah, it was fun. How fun are you having with Cameo? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was a guy because I could just pick up the phone and talk into it but you know women you know unless i want to see all kinds of crazy okay i would say better crazy ass pictures on the internet <laughs> you know you've got it you know take a shower do your hair so so i try to do all my cameos on one day you know so that i you know it's it's you know it, it makes sense and and and, and i'm also running cindymorgan.com which is, uh, you know, thank goodness of, of the broadcast background, because it's the same thing. You apply the same practices. CindyMorgan.com is, um, I've just got into it and started, I'm working with GoDaddy, which is like doing a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. I, I learned to drop videos into it this week. I mean, you can do it. And, and I'm, I'm um, loading up the, uh, I've got, you know how you got deep cuts on a, on a record? Mm-hmm. I've got the deep cuts on Caddyshack. I've got the deep cuts on Tron. And this is really cool. Oh, I'm glad you, I'm glad I, I, I was going to say you asked me, but you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the, the behind the scenes photos of Caddyshack taken by the editor, William Caruse. There are between 17, 700 and 1500 images because some are doubles. I've got them on disc. I've got them categorized. And I uh, have the film in a safe deposit box. The original negatives and I have the rights to them. Wow. 
and this is, I'm talking Europe. I've also got a photo, camera A and camera B next to each other. Mm. Camera A had a piece of plexiglass in front of it. Camera B just had like, was just kind of there. And I asked the editor, uh, well, Bill, I said, Cruz, I said, Bill, why is there plexiglass in front of that camera? He said, because you never knew where the golf balls were going to go. I said, well, what's in front of camera B? He says, that little, see that little piece of carpeting? In front of <laughs> That's all I had. I mean, the photos are remarkable. The parties. I mean, I've got oh. some up on my Facebook page. Uh, the, the parties, uh, it, it was like what happened during the day, kind of what happened, rolled into the evening. What happened? And some days you would just come home from whatever party you were at or get up and roll through hair, make my wardrobe. Thank God I was young enough. And also during it, though, I mean, it, it was 1970. During it, I knew I was ready. I, I was like, OK, I got to get home because I want to live to see 30. So, <laughs> so, you know, I'm not recommending that. It just happened. And, and by the way, it'll never happen again because the insurance companies would not allow it. That's a good point. Listeners, I'm going to put a link to CindyMorgan.com in the show notes. Cindy, do you get approached by fans of Lacey Underall? And if so, are they timid to approach you or what do they say? Um, I get stalked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 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 Rarely do rarely do people approach a sense I, 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 because I don't walk, I, I wear, I wear my glasses, my hair's in a ponytail, no makeup. It's Florida. I live in South Florida. It's hot. Yes. You know, I'm not going to wear makeup out there. So, um, but, but um, uh, at a golf tournament, for example, it's really, it's really interesting because it, it happens almost every time um, it, I, on the front nine. I'm fine. On the back nine, things start to change a little bit. You know, the beer carts. That's when I need security. And I can see, um, you know, the golfer. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I can see the golfers approaching me and I can see them going, yeah, I'm going to tell Lacey this. and I'm going to tell Lacey that. And as they get closer and closer, I can see them become the 14 year old little boy who saw Caddyshack for the first time. And they say, hi, Lacey. And I say, hi, would you like me to sign that? Oh, okay. What's your name? <laughs> it honestly, it's adorable. It's so the mo- biggest compliment I ever got was somebody said, "Would you sign this to my father, my son, and myself?" Hmm. I like that. Yeah, that like was pretty that. cool. Is there one line that you said in the movie that gets repeated back to you the most? Uh, uh tie me up with some of your ties. Tie. I hear that a lot. Not, but but but. Uh, I think the best work I did was what I reacted off of Chevy. Mm. Uh, the, the, like the piano scene, not written. My The best thing I did was play his straight man because that was real. That wasn't rehearsed. Um, the, 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 yeah, I, 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 I hear that line. Uh, skinny skiing, bullfights and acid. That was all in the script. Oh, that was. Um, that was all. Yeah, yeah, those things are in the script. I, I, I couldn't have come up with that. Uh, and uh, yeah, usually it's just high lacy, and usually I get asked what was Chevy really like, and 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 he was a handful. But I'll tell you, I did my best work with him. I'd do it again. Cindy, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule. I appreciate it. This has been fun. Thank you. I want to thank Michael O'Keefe and Cindy Morgan for being on this episode of Before the Lights. Listeners, go follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast and get those extra five bundles, BeforeTheLightsPod.com. Click on that bundles tab and purchase 
whatever section you would like. That's beforethelightspod.com. Click on the bundles tab. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everyone, a salute, a chin chin. <laughs>